Ladies and gentlemen, how do you introduce a man whose very name is part of American history and the history of American film that intertwines both Hollywood and Washington, D.C. with grace? Well, Oscar-winning film director George Stevens Sr. once said, Life is a journey, and it's most interesting when you're not sure where you're going. Today, we take a bit of a journey with the founder of the American Film Institute, the co-creator and, in my mind, the creator and founder of the Kennedy Center Honors, George Stevens Jr. His resume and life's accomplishments are so long, one would need to write a book to fit them all in, and he did just that. Mr. Stevens' memoir, My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington, is like walking through the passage of time. From the days of vaudeville to silent movies to talkies and into the world of Technicolor and even working with seven United States presidents in ways you've never seen them before. And the Stevens name is associated with us seeing American troops storm the beaches of Normandy, the atrocities of the concentration camps of World War II. But to be delighted with timeless film classics such as A Place in the Sun, It's a Wonderful Life, Giant, Shane, The Diary of Anne Frank, and The Greatest Story Ever Told, just to name a few. And his book is a name-dropper's delight and will make you ooh and awe as you read every page. So without further ado, let's welcome our very esteemed guest today, and I can honestly and truly say, the one and the only George Stevens Jr. to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you introduce a man whose very name is part of American history and the history of American film that intertwines both Hollywood and Washington, D.C. with grace? Well, Oscar-winning film director George Stevens Sr. once said, Life is a journey, and it's most interesting when you're not sure where you're going. Well, today we take a bit of a journey with the gentleman who founded the American Film Institute, the co-creator, and in my mind, the creator and founder of the Kennedy Center Honors, George Stevens Jr. His resume and life's accomplishments are so long, one would need to write a book to fit them all in, and he did just that. Mr. Stevens' memoir, My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood in Washington, is like walking through the passage of time, from the days of vaudeville to silent movies to talkies and into the world of Technicolor and even working with seven United States presidents in ways you've never seen them before. And the Stevens name is associated with us seeing American troops storm the beaches of Normandy, the atrocities of the concentration camps of World War II. But to be delighted with timeless film classics such as A Place in the Sun, It's a Wonderful Life, Giant and Shane, The Diary of Anne Frank, and The Greatest Story Ever Told, just to name a few. Well, his book is a name-dropper's delight and will make you ooh and ah as you read every page. So without further ado, let's welcome our very esteemed guest today, and I can honestly and truly say, the one and the only George Stevens Jr. to the show. Welcome, sir. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for that lovely introduction. And I, and I can add that not only can you read My Place in the Sun, but I have recorded it for audio and it's out on Amazon and Spotify and Audible and all those fancy places. 
Well, I, I will tell you this, sir. I read your book from cover to cover, and what an incredible journey, an incredible life, uh, a family legacy that, in my mind, is absolutely unmatched. I mean, you know, I want to kind of set the stage for all of my television viewers out there that your grandmother, Alice Howell, starred in a movie with Charlie Chaplin, but she was also called the female Charlie Chaplin. How old were you when you found out your grandmother was a star in the silent film era? Well, actually, she'd retired by the time I was born, and and it wasn't much talked about. Uh, but I did know, and she had a wonderful personality. And uh, and that and, I can go be, beyond that, that my great-grandmother, whose name was Georgia Woodthorpe, born in San Francisco, uh, after the Civil War, became a fine actress and started really five generations of Stevenses in show business. And Georgia Woodthorpe was the youngest Ophelia to our greatest uh, Hamlet, uh, Edwin Booth. And so she has that in her uh, resume. So I, it is a family that um, most of us have found one way or another into show business. Well, you know, your father was a cameraman at Roach Studios and actually yeah. filmed Laurel and Hardy. Uh, you know, and I believe now that's probably been definitely over 90 years ago. Knowing your family has that kind of history, does that still surprise you when you look back? Well, well I guess it doesn't surprise me because it would, that, that really was so a part of my youth. He was doing that just before I was born, but uh, it was so important to him because he had been around the Howl Road Studios. He was just 24 when he started with Laurel and Hardy, but he saw guys falling into the cement and kind of trying to brush the cement off. And he, he found from Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy that comedy could be graceful and human. And, you know, they had that kind of touch, a more quiet touch that was hilarious, but it wasn't people acting funny and making faces. In fact, it was kind of the absence of them making faces, those quiet takes uh, in response to something uh, that made it funny. Well, you know, with uh, Laurel and Hardy, uh, weren't they a, the duo that actually went from silent film to when talkies arrived. I mean, how did that change uh, creating stories when we now had sound? Well, I think their great films were, the, were in the silent era. They just were so unique and so suited to that. And they had that uh, manner and, and skill at pantomime that made them so wonderful. Uh, Yeah, and you know, now I was looking back, uh, and ladies and gentlemen, you this is actually Mr. Stevens' book, My Place in the Sun. And I was, you know, reading your book, Mr. Stevens, it's literally just walking through the full hit the full American history of film. And I was so surprised because I've heard this before, but you wrote it in your book that in 1935, Catherine Hepburn was called box office poison. But your father directed her in Alice Adams. 
and the film was nominated for Best Picture and Best Actress. For you, what was it like to know Katherine Hepburn and to work with her, and you finally got her to appear at the Kennedy Center Honors? Yes, well, uh, Katherine Hepburn was kind of a thread through my life. Uh, You know, in show business, you don't, you don't meet somebody on a movie set then see them every year or every Christmas. It, you know, the nature of it is that people come and go or come and stay away. But um, Kate, throughout the years in different incarnations of mine, uh, came into my life and, uh, and she was a unusual and delightful um, and somewhat thorny figure on occasion that I did adore her. Well, why, why did she really gravitate to being directed by your father? I, I think she'd, it, it, she'd that, that label had been applied early in her career, box office poison, and she knew she didn't need to be that. And she was looking for a new director. And when uh, uh, Alice Adams, the Booth Tarkington novel came along, uh, it was she who uh, asked for him to be her director, and they and they worked wonderfully together and made uh, uh, two other films after that. Well, I want to kind of move forward because your father, here he is, really just really becoming at the top of his game as a film director, and then World War Two happens and your father past the age of the draft decided to enlist and your father is literally responsible for giving us the firsthand look when the American Mm -hmm. troops did storm the beaches of Normandy. Uh, Your family name is forever written in American history. Uh, Did you, what did you feel at the time when your father came home from the war did you realize that all of that film footage that he uh, had was going to be something that we would forever watch? Uh, if I can, Ward, let me just bridge into that coming mm-hmm. off of Catherine Hepburn, because he made Alice Adams at age 35. And in the seven years or six years before he went to war, he made Annie Oakley with Barbara Stanwyck, Vivacious Lady with Jimmy Stewart and Ginger Rogers, uh, so many pictures, swing time, some think the best to stare Rogers with Fred and Ginger, and Gunga Din, the talk of the town, the more the merrier, woman of the year, uh, it, P- Penny Serenade, just, you know, think of that as a body of work for your first seven years in the movies. And then one night, he was in a screening room in Columbia Pictures in 1942, and he watched Leni Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, the brilliant documentary she made about Hitler and the German Third Reich uh, that, that was being shown around the world. And my father, sitting alone watching it, decided that he could not stay in Hollywood when talent like that was being used on the other side. So he asked for a commission on the condition that he would serve overseas, not be in an editing room. And uh, General Eisenhower put him in head, in charge of uh, the combat photography on D-Day 
on through the war in Europe. And he was away for three years, and uh, he uh, did a, a spectacular job. He enlisted great cameramen, writers like Erwin Shaw and William Saroyan, and the group was called the Stevens Irregulars. Uh, but they went in on D-Day and all through the, the liberation of Paris, the Battle of the Bulge, the link up with the Russians, and on into Dachau. And so it was quite an experience for all of them, but it did bring the war to the American people in newsreels and newsreel theaters. Yeah, and I found it uh, absolutely, um, gosh, I was in awe of reading that time of your father being in the war, but being responsible because even President Eisenhower said, I want as much of this war documented. And now, even to this day, we can look back and see what was going on during that war, thanks to your father. Yeah, and we have this, they shot 35 millimeter black and white film that came back to America, was put into theaters as newsreels and is still used today. But he also had along with him some 16 millimeter color film and it, the camera he used on back behind the scenes filming on Gunga Din. And he and his men passed that camera around shooting color film of all those in incidents that I mentioned. And it's the most valuable because we think of it as a black and white war, but to see this color film is just so vivid. And yeah. when, when he got to Dachau, he realized that his job now was not just to cover the war, but to gather evidence because he sensed that one day people would say, this never happened. And they went into the boxcars where bodies were frozen and took pictures that were shown at the war crimes trial in Nuremberg at the end of the war. And you actually had the opportunity, and I believe that you also took your sons uh, to see Dachau in person many decades later. I did. I went with my father, and then years later, went with my son. It was sort of a family tradition. So, you know, as I was thinking uh, about that time that your father was filming the war, and there are so many war stories when it comes to your father. I was surprised that a film hasn't been made about his filming of the war. But what actor would you choose to play your father? Um, well, I'm not available. Um, the, actually, there is one film. I made a film called George Stevens' D-Day to Berlin that's available on Criterion and some other places in which I did do a documentary about the Stevens Irregulars and, sh and, and containing all of that very unusual film. Yes, and I, and I have read that. And uh, as I mentioned in your introduction, uh, and I always, and I really enjoyed some of the quotes that uh, you wrote in your book that your father would say, and it got yeah. to me. It got to me thinking about some of the films that uh, he directed. You know, A Place in the Sun. Uh, 
I was astonished that he actually directed and produced It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, and I was surprised that, uh, well, I was, when your father would say, you know, we'll see what this film does in about 25 years. Are you surprised about how It's a Wonderful Life became a Christmas tradition in homes uh, for millions of people every single year? Well, well, first I should say that Frank Capra directed It's a Wonderful Life, but that idea of the test of time, um, he said that to me the night he received his first Oscar for A Place in the Sun. We were in the car together driving home from the Oscars, and he said, we'll have a better idea what kind of a film this is in about 25 years, which was an unusual thing to say because DVDs had not come, there was no streaming, there were no cinematechs. Films basically came and went. But he had this understanding from having been in the theater with his father that uh, art is measured by the test of time. And then when I started the American Film Institute, obviously I was influenced by that idea of the test of time because you know, we were involved in preserving and saving the great films and, uh, and, and honoring the, with the Life Achievement, and honoring with the Life Achievement Award uh, directors and stars whose work stood the test of time. Yeah, and we have you to thank for that. Now, how many films are now in the American Film Institute? Over 40,000? Yes, and they're all in the Library of Congress. We in the 60s and 70s had young people who went out and rescued these films. They were in laboratories, storerooms, and they were on nitrate film, which could disappear or burst into flames. So we gathered those, those 42,000 films, took them to the Library of Congress where they're preserved, and they are all now in Culpeper, Virginia, um, in cold storage, uh, uh, in the AFI collection at the Library of Congress. I mean, how does that make you feel that you have saved history, especially for, especially the history of film? I'm, 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 I feel awfully good about it because it wasn't going to happen unless we did it. And uh, over the years, there have been great collaborators. Martin Scorsese has done a lot of good work with his film foundation and UCLA, and there are now many archives, but uh, as a little... All right, well, I want to, there, there was two areas in your book, uh, still based on your father, but you were right there with him, especially with the, uh, the diary of Anne Frank, uh, and I saw the photo. What was it like to actually hold her diary? Oh, my God, that was a, a, a so extraordinary, Ward. Uh, when we were preparing the diary of Anne Frank, my father and I uh, went to Europe. We went at that time to Dachau together. Uh, he had not been there, of course, since it was filled with bodies. And then we went to the beaches at D-Day and then to Amsterdam. And we went to a little office in downtown Amsterdam and rang the bell one morning. And a tall man, uh, balding with white hair, opened the door, and it was Otto Frank, Anna's father, who had uh, been in Auschwitz and survived Auschwitz. 
uh, although his daughters and his wife died in Belson. Uh, and he took us in and we sat and talked and he was meeting the man who was going to direct his daughter's story and he was very interested in him. And then he went to a cabinet and he put something out and had a little cloth wrapped in cloth and put it in front of it. Us and here was this red plaid volume which had Anne Hanks, Frank's handwriting, the pictures she'd pasted in. And right in front of us was the work this girl, this 12 to 14 year old girl had prepared. And it was just so moving because Hitler was the voice that kept her imprisoned and led to her death. But then her book, I think it's been read by more than 17 million people. And so to hold that book and then to go to the hiding place, which was then empty, and for have Dr. Have Otto Frank show us up into the rooftop hiding place, it was a very moving experience. Well, you know, I was amazed at the contrast in your book because as I looked at the photo of you holding Anne Frank's diary prior to that, and correct me if I'm wrong, and hope, and I believe I read this correctly, your father brought back Adolf Hitler's Bible? Well, he, he brought, they went to the Eagle's Nest in Austria at the end of the war, dad and the few jeeps where Hitler hung out. And they brought back record albums, uh, a thing of the Meister Singer, the score and a beautiful red album signed to Hitler from Joseph Goebbels, his leading propagandist. So we, we did have some, uh, some uh, what my father called liberated material from the eagle's nest. But once he had it back home, uh, the connection to Hitler was such that he got rid of it and gave it to museums. He didn't feel like it was something we wanted around the house. I agree with that. And then with him directing the diary of Anne Frank, I guess with your father's first hand account at Dachau, it really helped him bring her story to life in a way that most people would not be able to, correct? Yeah, he had such a deep understanding of all of that. You know, at one time, uh, he was less than 100 miles from Anne Frank uh, at, during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he calculated that in retrospect. Uh, so I think he was the right man to make that picture. I believe he was. Now, uh, your father also directed the movie Giant, which is still iconic today. And, of course, when we mention Giant, most people will think of James Dean right off the bat. But, of course, there was Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor. But there was a story in your book that you wrote about, which I thought was very interesting. And I, and I have to ask you, because my, my son actually drove to Marfa, Texas oh to my see— gosh. To see where Giant was filmed, because not only does he love that movie, but he's also a big fan of James Dean. But you wrote a story in your book that nobody would write in James Dean's uh, famed Porsche 550 Spider, but you did. Uh, is that your fondest memory of James Dean? Well, I have some, some very fond memories, and this 
was my last memory of him because uh, it came uh, just a couple of weeks before his death. I was, I was in the Air Force for a lot of the shooting of Giant, but I would visit the set and I was in Warner Brothers in, in North Hollywood in Burbank and I was watching what was being shot. It was the big fight scene in the diner and somebody comes in and sits next to me and it's Jimmy. He's got his tinted glasses and he'd finished shooting two weeks before and he had promised not to drive his car while shooting. Um, and he uh, but now had a new car and he said, you want to see it? So I went outside and here was this Porsche 500 Spider, just a little silver thing that sat there on the ground, dull silver color that said the little bastard on it. That's what he'd named it. And the two of us got in that car and he revved up the engine. And it's a, a sound studio. You've seen them with big, tall sound stages, not a, not a, not a uh, racetrack. But we went zoomed around there and I was all fortunate that a prop truck didn't come the other way or, uh, and, and we had about a four minute ride and parked back on the set. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, it's nice, Jimmy. It's nice, Jimmy. Um, but of course, uh, three weeks later, he had discussed it with my father and uh, he had discussed it with my father and uh, they agreed that he would drive the uh, truck, the car up, send it up on a truck. But the morning he set off for Salinas, he changed his mind and he and his mechanic got in the car and they drove up the Pacific Coast Highway and had that fatal accident in which this wonderful bright light of American movies was killed. Yeah, and you also wrote in your, uh, your book that uh, back in the day, it was almost, I hate to use the term, almost the death of a picture if one of its stars uh, passed away before it was released. But that didn't happen with Giant, did it? It did not. I remember there was an actor called Robert Walker who died shortly before this. And his picture that was coming out, they just gave up on it. They, they felt no one would want to see somebody who wasn't alive. Um, and indeed, Giant, uh, we introduced it at the Turner Classic Film Festival a year ago, Steven Spielberg and I. Steven had encouraged me to initiate a, 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 a restoration of it. And uh, we showed it, and it was just so exciting to see this great film. And, it, and its ideas were so modern. You know, an independent woman at the center of it, center of it, played by Elizabeth Taylor, concerned with the Hispanics uh, and the less advantaged people on that big ranch, and uh, you know, so it's a very much a story of to, for today, and we were thrilled about seeing an audience watch it on an IMAX screen, 65 years after it had premiered in that same. Raman's Chinese theater. Yeah, your father had an incredible eye when it came to using the camera to tell a story. And mm. ladies and gentlemen, this is a book that you have to read if you really, and if you're an aspiring filmmaker, this is the book to read because you really have to understand 
uh, George Stevens Sr. and his eye, because you do explain in the book about uh, a little issue he had with uh, a certain type of camera and its lenses, oh, yeah. which really yeah. sparked my, uh, piqued my interest, so to speak, because I never even thought of things like that. But uh, it's great to have, that have men like your father figure things like that out so that way he could get the shot that he needed. Um, I'm so pleased, Brad, that you enjoyed the book because what people find is, it's a substantial book, but, but the stories are, are, are crafted and, they're, uh, and one leads to another. It's not a, and they're just so many fascinating people that were part of my life. Uh, and it just gives me an opportunity to remember them and, and tell the stories that, uh, uh, that you know, actually proved to be so fascinating in retrospect. Yes. And I want to move to your time in Washington because you worked right. with your father until you got an offer from Edward R. Morrow to come to Washington, D.C. Was this the turning point of your life of finding your own place in the sun? I think it was. I used to joke at the time when I was directing Peter Gunn and Alfred Hitchcock Presents, when I was directing Peter Gunn and Alfred Hitchcock Presents and working with my father on The Diary of Anne Frank, that I was likely going to spend my entire career becoming the second best film director in my family. Um, but Murrow invited me to come back before Kennedy's New Frontier and make 300 documentaries a year for showing abroad for the United States Information Agency. And it took me into another world. I met my wife, Elizabeth, in Washington. I had the honor and the pleasure of serving with President Kennedy and coming to know his brother, Bobby, very well. And, and just, you know, starting a new life, founding the American Film Institute, starting the Kennedy Center Honors, becoming involved in politics and government. Uh, so I, I had a, as I say in the title, the golden age of Hollywood and the golden age of Washington. Well, what did you learn from working with John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy? I, I learned, President Kennedy w was uh, fond of quoting the ancient Greeks. He was very inspiring man. And one of the things he wrote about, and I wrote it down, was the ancient Greek definition of happiness, which he wrote is the fullest use of one's powers along lines of excellence. And I found working for Murrow and Kennedy and making this movies that that Greek happiness, you know, I was living it. They had given me an opportunity to be making these movies and doing this work to the fullest use of my powers along lines of excellence. And uh, so the uh, optimism and sense of purpose that both Jack and Bobby had uh, definitely influenced me. And when the time came to start the Kennedy Center Honors, I went to exp explain it, propose it to the chairman of the Kennedy Center. And I said, I can do it very concisely. The words are carved on the outside of this building, the John F. Kennedy Center Mo 
Memorial Center for the Performing Arts. And his words on the building I recited, I look forward to an America that will not be afraid of grace and beauty, that will reward, that will reward achievement in the arts the way we reward achievement in business and statecraft. And rewarding achievement was the idea of the Kennedy Center Honors, which I produced for 37 years. Yes, you did. And what kind of stumbling blocks did you encounter when you uh, wanted to start the American Film Institute and then uh, the Kennedy uh, Center Honors? Well, there were all kinds. I mean, uh, money, uh, earning the acceptance and the belief of others that the idea is really worthwhile. Um, and just, you know, making little rocks out of big rocks. Uh, that uh, both of them were extremely challenging and extremely rewarding. You know, great satisfaction that I, with a lot of collaboration from other people, was able to found the American Film Institute and establish the Kennedy Center Honors. <clears throat> yeah. Are you, were you surprised that, okay, so you've worked with seven United States presidents. Uh, and I'm sure that it made your life easier knowing that all of them supported the arts. It was, yes, and part of my job was to induce them to support the arts if they weren't previously inclined. President Kennedy was really the first president to be, to be outspoken, articulate, and uplifting about the arts, uh, 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 assisted by his wife, Jack, his wife Jacqueline, who really adored the the arts, maybe more than he. She she was known to have said that uh, she loved the symphony. She was uh, known to have said that Jack's favorite song is Hail to the Chief. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I, I chuckled when I actually read that in your book. And as I'm taking this journey and this path along with you in the pages of your book. And ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you this, this book is literally, it's 500 pages of the best read you will ever have in your hand. But oh. as I was reading it, Mr. Stevens, I learned that you really had a knack for the art of persuasion and negotiation. So did that come naturally or was that something that you learned by working in Washington? I think I probably learned that working with my father. He was a, a director whose main interest was having control over his films. And he didn't want somebody to tell him how to cut him or who to cast. And I just saw how he organized his life uh, and organized his arrangements with the studios. And when I came to make, and what I learned from him in how to make films, when I came to Washington to make these documentaries, I, I really knew what I wanted in terms of, I wanted to control them, surrounded by a large agency of bureaucrats, and I wanted them to be of high quality. And uh, so I really brought a lot of that with me. Well, you, you brought 
uh, and I and I truly believe that a lot of credit does go to your father. You did you yourself have brought incredible excellence to the the film industry. Uh, and one of the things that I had really admired uh, while reading your book was how positive um, and cordial, respectful you were to every person that you mentioned in your book. There was never a sense of negativity. And of course, in this day and age, if you mention Washington, D.C., I think the spirit of negativity just jumps out of a lot of people. But in your yeah. book... It was so refreshing to, I mean, I gained a much more respect for John and Bobby Kennedy in ways that I had never seen them before. And, and to realize that in the day, we did have politics where we had a president that truly yeah. loved America, believed in peace. And I love the fact that they seemed to... Um, you know, I didn't pick up the the tone of racism at all until uh, I think of maybe a paragraph or two of LBJ. But I just love the fact that even you and your father, uh, you saw no color, and I appreciated that. No. Yeah, and and I had the opportunity for President Kennedy to make uh, an Oscar-winning movie called Nine from Little Rock, a documentary about the children who entered segregated Little Rock High School uh, to jeers and uh, attacks, um, and a film about the march uh, for Martin Luther King's March on Washington. So we were able to give an elevated uh, view of, of that, a progressive view. Um, so that was a good thing. Well, what is your fondest memory of all of the Kennedy Center honors that you produced? Oh, there are so many. Um, I, I, gosh, you know, like, I, I would say, and it's not above all others, but Sidney Poitier, when the great soprano Jesse Morgan, uh, Jesse Norman, when the great soprano Jesse Morgan, when the great soprano Jesse Norman came on the stage uh, and sang to him and to see the look on his face. Uh, but I put alongside that the Nicholas Brothers and Leontine Price and, uh, and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so there you go. There, there you go. And ladies and gentlemen, again, within the 500 pages of this memoir, you are in for the biggest delight you will ever have reading about the history of American film. And Mr. Stevens, it is an absolute honor and a pleasure to speak to you and to uh, kind of shine a little bit of light on your life, your father's life, even back to your grandmother. Uh, well, Mr. Bond, I enjoyed it. I, you have... A lot of range of good questions, and it was great fun for me to be able to talk to your audience. Well, I know one thing. I could literally talk to you for hours uh, <laughs> because there is so much more in this book. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, You will. it is definitely hard for me to put into words of the history and of film and having Mr. Stevens go to Washington and still intertwined 
Hollywood with everything that he did. Again, working with seven United States presidents. So I'm going to leave you with this. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Brokaw has said that George Stevens Jr.'s life as a guardian of American cinema and his own signature films have been a remarkable celebration of the arts. Even Steven Spielberg calls George Stevens Jr. a deeply patriotic and proactive American. Everything he has touched seems to have found a place in our collective history. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I encourage you to get Mr. Stevens' book, My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington, so you can add it to your own collection of history. But make sure you read it, because film is something that is equal to the written word, but in moving pictures. And Mr. Stevens has saved some of the most famous films of all time, over 42,000 of them. So we don't forget this very important art form of storytelling. What starts out as an idea, then created on pen and paper, and then the artistic vision of a director with an eye that the actors must have faith in so that it comes to life. So if you are an aspiring filmmaker, just know that your place in the sun is just three words away. Lights, <laughs> camera, action. I'll be back with more. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs>